You are listening to the official podcast of First Baptist Church of Cape Girardeau. We are a community of faith, hope, and love located in Southeast Missouri. For more information, visit our website at fbccape.com. The, the older I get, the more my approach to and feelings and thoughts about heaven begin to change. Uh, maybe even my thoughts about dying. Now, I've long said, my, my whole life as a preacher, I've said, there's a lot of difference in saying everybody's going to die sometime and saying I'm going to die in 10 minutes. You know, that, that whole thing comes into a whole different perspective when that happens. But the older I get, the more I see Uh, well, I see how important it is to know that I have a future and that that future is not confined to what I can see and touch in this life. So Paul says past, present, and future, we have that salvation. When we go back into the passage in Mark and we see Jesus' conversation with this man, we see essentially the same thing. So one day, and I won't read the whole passage again since you've already heard the passage, but I hope you'll leave your Bible open to that passage in Mark's Gospel, in Mark 10, because the text begins at verse 17. A man came to Jesus and he was looking for the easy way. The question's in verse 17. As he was sitting on a journey, setting on a journey Jesus said, uh, Jesus was setting on the journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to, be, to inherit eternal life? Now notice it doesn't say he's rich, it doesn't say he's a ruler, and it does not say he's young. We get all that from other sources in the gospel. It does say later on he owned a lot of property. Well, let me tell you something. I own two houses now, kind of. One of them is in Fayetteville, Arkansas, but the other one is still in Farmington, Missouri, and I do not feel in any way, shape, or form rich at owning much property. But we get from other sources this man is wealthy. We get from other sources that he uh, probably is some kind of of an authority in some way, shape, or form, and we get from other sources that, that we believe he's a young man. He must have had some kind of spiritual longing. I mean, he has it all. He reminds me of the author of Ecclesiastes. We've attributed that to Solomon, and that may very well be the case. But the author of Ecclesiastes essentially spends the whole book saying, I have everything. Everything that anyone could want, I have. I have done everything that anybody could want to do. I have built everything that anybody wants to build. I, everything that I can, everything that's available, I have had and I have taken advantage of. And it's all like a breath of wind. It's all vanity. Something's wrong with this man that made him come to Jesus. Maybe he'd heard about Jesus. Uh, Maybe he'd been in Jesus' presence, which both of these things indicate the importance of you and I as Christians taking the presence of Jesus to people who need to hear him and know him and, and, uh, and experience him. And he recognized something about Jesus that was different. It's one of those 
divine appointments. And if he did feel this longing, really all he wants Jesus to do, at least initially, is fit in that missing piece. Finish the puzzle of life for me, Jesus. What is the one thing that I haven't done? I mean, I, I've kind of done everything else. I've kept all the commandments, you know. I've, uh, I'm, I'm certainly self-righteous if I'm not truly righteous. I've tried to do all of these things. What's that, what's that one last thing? I'm, what am I missing? What can you do for me? Or better still, what can I do for you that will make a difference? There is a bit of self-assurance in his question. And whether this man was truly searching or whether he was using flattery to try to uh, impress Jesus, Jesus drove a nail through the heart of the whole conversation right from the beginning. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. If you lived in that day, the only person that you would describe as good was God. No one else would qualify. Jesus goes ahead to say, uh, and if I can paraphrase this, give the Miller paraphrase, what are you asking me for? You already know what to do. I don't know how many of you may know my, one of my former colleagues, Rocky Good. Rocky is the pastor of New Heights Church outside of Farmington, but for several years he was our minister of education at First Baptist. I know the Colliers know him and the, uh, the Reeves know him, but Rocky uh, said something really unkind about me one time, still kind of smarting over it, when he described to someone how I do marriage counseling. First of all, I don't really do any marriage counseling and didn't then, and my advice to most pastors is when it comes to marriage counseling, make sure you have a good list of people you can refer to who can actually help them. But Rocky said, Rocky in my presence was telling someone about my marriage counseling. He said, well, here's how Brother Bill does marriage counseling. He sits there and listens to them for a little while, and he says, what are you doing here? Why do you need me to tell you to do anything? Do you not know that you shouldn't commit adultery? Do you not know that you have to forgive him? Do you not know that forgiveness and doing the right, do you not know what you're supposed to do? If you don't, I can't help you anyway. And anyway, if I tell you the right thing to do, you're not going to do it because you haven't done it so far. Now that's totally false. I'm far more compassionate than that. Well, that's not the only thing Rocky's ever said about me. I just want you to know that I was in Rocky's office one day when he was still our minister of education. His daughter was in there, and she probably was in first or second grade, and Rocky had a picture of his wife, Cheryl, hanging there, and she's beautiful. It was one of those glamour shots. Rocky's facing away from us, uh, doing some work on his computer at his credenza, Hannah, his daughter, sitting at the front of that, 
and she's doing her homework, and I said, Hannah, your mom is a babe. She is beautiful. Hannah never looks up at me. She's looking down the whole time. She said, yeah. And I said, there's just one thing I don't understand. And I, she, she said, what's that? Never looks up at me. I said, I just don't understand why she'd marry somebody like your dad. And here's Hannah's response, still has not looked up and doesn't look up the whole time. She says, well, <laughs> looks aren't everything, you know. <laughs> and he's really funny. <laughs> what, what do you, why are you asking me this, Jesus might have said. You know the commandments. And notice which commandments Jesus uses. It's from the second half. And notice that the word is translated not covet here, but defraud, which is an interesting term used to a man who's wealthy, isn't it? In that day. And there are three responses to this initial questioning this initial back and forth. Number one, the man said, I have done all of those things and most likely to the best of the ability he had done them all. Or in the case of the second half of the commandments, had not done them, had not committed adultery, had not stolen, had not done those things that are forbidden. Then there's a second response and this this is really easy to miss and maybe one of the most important things that this whole passage of Scripture says. It says that Jesus looked at him with love. He didn't rebuke him. In fact, he agreed with him. You've done really well. He looked at, in fact, one of the common commentaries says, it appears that Jesus liked this guy. Isn't that an interesting comment? It appears that Jesus liked him. The third response is Jesus getting into the meat of the matter when he says in verse 21, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Does Jesus ask too much? What if he asked me that? Frank Stagg said, you know, Jesus doesn't always ask us to sell everything that we have and give the money away. It would be a mistake to think that Jesus would never ask us to sell everything we have and give the money away. In fact, so, so concerned were the rabbis about this that the rabbis later on developed some some guidelines so that people would not give away everything they had. And in fact, I think one of those guidelines was to limit it to no more than 20%. And, and couldn't this man have somehow said, look, I've done all these things. Uh, Jesus, you just told me something to do that I cannot do. And let's think about that a little bit, ladies and gentlemen. That, is that going to always for us just simply be a really good Bible story? Or is there any way in the world that we could ever apply the truth of this story to our own lives? 
And why couldn't this young man walk away, instead of walking away being sad, why couldn't he walk away saying, I'm close enough. I'm better than the guy down the street. I have kept all those commandments. What Jesus has just asked me to do is unreasonable. Nobody's going to do that, and I'm not going to do it either. And the Bible says he went away grieving, but I, I have to ask you, why was he grieving? Because he had everything he brought with him. He was still, in our modern vernacular, he was still rich. But he didn't have Jesus. In this passage of Scripture, beginning with verse 23 and following, you then see that they are learning this difficult truth. I try to read five, at least five days a week. I try to read at least five psalms and one proverb. I haven't done that my whole life, but I just started that in the last year or two, restarted it, I guess. Um, I'm retired. I have a little bit more time to do stuff like that than some people do because it takes a little time to read through those chapters, and some, some of the psalms are pretty long. It's an interesting uh, contrast between the two. The book of Proverbs almost, uh, you know, it it, it exalts uh, wisdom, doing the right thing, listening to the right teaching, being the right kind of a teacher. But uh, the book of Proverbs also sometimes makes this equation. If you do the right thing, then these good things will happen. And if you do the wrong thing, these bad things will happen. And, And in some ways, we understand that to be true but not in the way we've heard some TV preachers talk about it. The psalmist, on the other hand, uh, I, I have described the psalms as sometimes raw. Raw. Really, the psalmist bearing his heart in prayer. The psalms are sort of a combination songbook and prayer book. And we see those times when we can relate very well to the psalmist because we would pray right along beside him, Lord, why is that guy rich and I'm not? Why does that guy seem to have it made and I don't have it made? Why is everything going well for him and nothing is going right for me? He is awful and I am good. And you will very often see in the Psalms, or, or you will frequently see in the Psalm, that, this, that, that God literally will turn this around on the psalmist. Uh, and say something to the effect of what you see is not what you get. You're looking at the wrong, you're looking at what you think is reality, and it's not. It's false. James Brooks in the New American Commentary says the entire section, or this entire section, emphasizes that riches make being a disciple difficult, but the rewards of discipleship are worth more than material possessions. Jesus did not teach that wealth is evil. He did not teach that poverty is better than riches. He did not teach that only the poor can be saved. He did teach that discipleship is costly and that wealth often is a hindrance in repentance and acceptance of the gospel. 
eternal life, the eternal life, let me say it this way, the eternal life that this man missed was not the surety and the reality that he would someday die and go to heaven. Very clearly, it's not. Clearly, the eternal life that this man missed was what was happening right then. And he went away sad because he didn't have it. He had a lot, but he didn't have everything, did he? Listen to some well-known preachers. Read some books that claim to be uh, knowledgeable about prayer, about the scriptures. Read them and listen to them say, if you do the right things, if you follow the right formula, if you pray the right way, you will be rich. If you believe God for it, your prayers will be answered the way you want them. Your life will be easy. And that is not what the scriptures promise. What do they promise? Peter, who always said, uh, whatever came to mind. I once described my mother as saying she never had an unexpressed thought. Neither did Peter. We have left everything and followed you. Actually, that was true. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. It's not a promise that Jesus is making that we will receive that in material goods in this life. But it is a promise that Jesus is making. Actually, there's a sort of a twofold promise there. That to know him and to follow him and to have that eternal life results in more and better. Not just money not even just the physical things that Jesus uh, presented here, but even beyond that. More important than what this rich man took away. But it also entails something else. Persecutions. And then he offers that pretty famous comment at the very end of this passage. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Well, here's a good question for all of us. What do I want? And the question of eternal life is, what? What's one thing I could do that would give me peace? What's one thing that I could do that would make me know? What's one thing that I can do for God? 
when the teaching of Scripture is, Jesus Christ has done those things. And the call to commitment that he makes to his people is to trust, it is to believe, it is to follow him. And as followers of Jesus Christ, it is a call to share that good news with others as well. Because in some ways, as we share that good news, we are the fulfillment of those words that Jesus gave. Our brothers and sisters increase. Our family of God increases. Our home increases. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. I just want to tell you that I've never, I'm not aware of Jesus ever asking me to sell all that I have and give the money away. I'm certainly very aware of Jesus calling generosity forth from those of us who are able to be generous. What I am acutely aware of these days, insofar as a call from Jesus is concerned, is to trust him. That may be the most difficult thing of all. And for what reason, I do not know. But that is the call. Pray pray with me, would you? Father, you've called us to live a life of commitment to you. You tell us in your word that it is impossible for us to do something to be saved. Your word even compared that to the camel going through the eye of the needle. You also say in your word what's impossible with human beings is more than possible with you, and you have demonstrated that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us today, as a congregation, as your family, renew that commitment that you've called us to, to love you, to serve you, to be open, Lord, to your calling to specific activities that we might be able to to, uh, do for others. Father, help us. In much the same words as the man who came to Jesus that day, Lord, we believe. Please help our unbelief. And give us grace to be the kind of trusting people who can show others the way. In Jesus' name, amen.